China is home to perhaps the most diverse cuisine in the world, and Chinese immigrants have been changing the culinary landscape of many American cities for over a century. For today's Please Explain, we're talking about a particular Cantonese cuisine that has been a feature of New York's Chinatown since its start, dim sum. From shumai and hargao to foie gras and braised duck chins, dim sum continues to be an innovative aspect of Chinese cuisine in this country. Ed Schoenfeld, restaurateur, Chinese food historian and aficionado, and owner-operator of the Zagat top-rated Red Farm and Decoy restaurants, joins us now. Red Farm is also a New York Times critic's pick in 2012 with a glowing review by Pete Wells. Ed, it's always a pleasure to see you. Welcome back to our show. Thank you so much, Leonard. And we always invite our audience during the segments to join in the conversation. If you have questions about dim sum, its origins, customs, or you just want to know how to order it and um, do it without looking like you don't know what you're talking about, you can give us a call. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can leave us a comment on the show page at wmyc.org slash lopate or write to us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So let's start where dim sum starts. What are the origins of it? Well, dim sum is a, a style of uh, cooking and eating. Uh, it is uh, part from southern China, from Cantonese cuisine. And uh, the words dim sum, they mean literally dot and heart. Some people have said it means something from the heart, almost as a way of inspiring the chef to make something very soulful. But dot would also suggest it's small. Well, it things. is small. Indeed, it's, you know, the Chinese version of tapas, or maybe tapas is the the Spanish version of dim sum. And, and it's small plates of food that are typically eaten uh, along with a pot of tea, uh, typically eaten in the morning, though, and some, certainly sometimes in the afternoon, very casually. And uh, in Cantonese, the phrase, uh, when you, you say to your, your child or friend, whatever, let's, you know, go have dim sum, you say yum cha, and yum cha means drink tea. Let's drink tea. And so when you go to a, a restaurant, the first thing that they ask, they come up to you and they say, tea? Uh, and it's like, what kind of tea would you like? Jasmine, poo or tea? I like to drink uh, an herbal tea when I go for dim sum. I, I almost always order chrysanthemum tea. On the other hand, most of the Chinese people I've had dim sum with order bole. Yeah, bole cha. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Which is what? Just standard tea? No, it you know it's a, a semi-fermented tea, and I mean it's tea. It's not an it's not an herbal drink. How but, far back does this tradition go? Do we know? You know, my 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 roots go back uh, to Constantinople, not to Canton. <laughs> so I I I personally you know plead a little ignorance on that. I, I I certainly hundreds and probably thousands of years would be my guess. I mean the. the um, the use of different kinds of uh, flowers in, in Chinese food goes back a really long time. And, you know, the there are different types of uh, flour used to make dim sum dumplings. Mostly, most of us think of, of dim sum as small dumplings on a plate. Mm-hmm. And we, we typically think of it as a restaurant where there's a cart that gets pushed around. You see the different choices on the, in the cart and you, you point. Um, very few of those dumplings are made with wheat flour. Uh, they're made with tapioca flour. But tapioca is a South American ingredient. Well, I mean, they're they're 
Part of the, the Columbian Exchange? I, I guess so. I, you know, I, anthropology is, is not my expertise. You know, culinary things are, are more so. So I, I can speak pretty authoritatively to, you know, the use, for instance, of, of not only tapioca flour, but potato, another, another mm. new world yeah. tuber, right? And uh, potato starch is very, very commonly used. And, and in fact, the kind of translucent, wrappers um, that we see often have those two products in them and also something called wheat starch. But also sometimes shrimp paste. Wrappers are made from the shrimp themselves. They, they, in, that's a rarefied kind of riff on something traditional. You know, a, a normal shrimp dumpling has one of these uh, kind of semi-clear wrappers. Uh, the, the best ones are wrappers where you can actually see through them with a translucent mm-hmm. and get a sense of what's inside. Now, this started in rural Guangdong, Canton. Uh, uh, it, it, Hong Kong is a big city nearby. Uh, did things change when it went to the big city? Well, I, I think it became institutionalized in, in the daily life of the people there in a, in a very substantial way. And people in Hong Kong wake up in the morning and, and one of the main things that they would do would be go, let's get a pot of tea and get, oh yeah, we got a little plate, a snack, a dumpling, a, mm-hmm. a bun, as it were. And then over a period of time, you, you have a, a very simple experience that's evolved into an art form. The best chefs in uh, in Hong Kong, the best dim sum chefs, um, literally make a thousand different plates of dim sum. Not all dumplings, by the way. Some of the things are... are are fried things. Some of the dumplings themselves are not steamed, but they're pan-fried, or they might be baked or deep-fried. And so, some of them are just small little plates of food. You know, like du- you mentioned braised duck chins in the introduction. I haven't seen duck chins, but I've certainly seen duck tongues. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the sort of thing you'd see. Or and you see a lot of duck feet. Duck feet and chicken feet and, and boneless duck feet. Though you, you see duck feet more in in Hong Kong and in in the chi- in in China, and and here I see mostly chickens' feet. And uh, would we find this mostly in Canton, and uh, or is dim sum something that has spread through other parts of China? Dim sum is something that is recognized uh, as a Cantonese style of cooking, and China is a big busy, and at this point. Um, uh, you know, a place where food and hospitality has grown a lot. And so you can find Cantonese-style dim sum in, in different parts of China, but you can also find uh, a, a culinary heritage that involves dumplings, noodles, breakfast food, snacks that is indigenous to each of the areas. So if we went to Sh- Shanghai, for instance, um, w- we could go out for dim sum and the the you roster, the menu is different. It's soup dumplings. It's little flaky pastries filled with shredded daikon and ham. Um, it's spring rolls, things that are Shanghainese. And and the same could be said in Beijing. You you know you'd find a a, a type of pan fried bun there that would be the main item that people eat locally. Different than Cantonese. And, We're talking about dim sum on today's. Please explain with Ed Schoenfeld who uh, is the owner-operator of uh, the Zagat top-rated r- restaurants, Red Farm and Decoy. Decoy, number one Zagat restaurant, Chinese restaurant in New York. It is in 2016, and in the previous few years, uh, Red Farm was. So it's very sweet for us to 
have supplanted ourselves. So, um, and Decoy's uh, a restaurant that features uh, cook-to-order, you know, bespoke Peking ducks, and uh, a group of foods that my partner Joe Ang, our chef, and I feel would be the foods that we wanted to eat before we ate the duck. And um, I had one, actually, I had a, a well-known restaurant um, investor and owner for dinner last night in Decoy, and I choose for us to have little um, uh, first courses that were made from duck, so we had an all-duck menu, <laughs> so we had little shots of duck duck consommé. We had little uh, tarts that we picked up with a piece of seared foie gras and a little strawberry, Asian-flavored strawberry jam underneath. Would you have foie gras in China? These days, yes. Uh, so people are expanding the dim sum uh, uh, range? Um, people are expanding the dim sum range. I think you might be seeing foie gras more in a restaurant setting on the dinner menu than you would be uh, in in the the dim sum range. But, but you do see that. I mean, right now in, in Hong Kong, uh, truffle-flavored dumplings, foie gras-filled dumplings, uh, abalone filled things that with luxury ingredients are definitely part of menus and and you know people people's eating's aspirations well you mentioned earlier that dim sum is generally traditionally breakfast or early lunch mm-hmm. but i see restaurants in new york now that say dim sum all day long uh, is that kosher well now now you're making a pun here um you know, small bites of food are things that eaters like to eat, whether we're calling them tapas, whether they're small, you know, chichette in a, in a Venetian restaurant. And it, it's a modern way of eating. And so it's it's only, I can't think, logical that people want to sample more things. You, you're not often with a large group that affords you the, the ability to sample many things. People go to tasting restaurants. So Dim Simmons is, is, is right along, the, you know, that type of experience. And experience is what our business is, our, our, our world is about. That's what your Fridays are about. People are dying to experience food as, as you know, one of the main things that you enjoy doing in life. And uh, it's fun to go eat Dim Sum and try different things and, and unusual things. And then you learn about other people's traditions. Uh, on Twitter, uh, a listener asks, uh, I've seen people remove the lid of the teapot and balance uh, it on top of the pot. What does that mean? That um, means my pot they, is empty and I want to refill. And often they invert the top of the yeah, pot. Yeah, that means it's it, that's a there are a whole bunch of little hand signs in uh, the world of Chinese restaurants. I, you know, I can't say this on the radio, but I'm holding up fingers at you now like, Mm-hmm. Holding them one finger, two fingers, three, six. These are the signs that waiters and maitre d's and owners use in Chinese restaurants to signify to someone in the dining room about the new party that's coming in. How I need a table for this many, mm-hmm. and they hold up uh, six. Six. Uh, so hand signs became a way of of communicating across a big dining room because well, dim sum restaurants often are huge spaces. Uh, they are. I mean, to have the carts, you know, to push the carts around. And, and you know, it, it's a little bit of a misnomer, uh, I think, that many people have that a dim sum restaurant is a cart restaurant. Um, in, well, yours aren't. Mine aren't. And if we were in Hong Kong going out um, or Guangzhou and we were in 
we asked the question, hey, where's the best place in town? We'd probably end up in a hotel setting and probably we'd get a menu and probably we would get a, a card or, where we could tick off on the card the different items and we'd hand that to the waiter. In that setting, the different dishes are cooked to order. When you see things on a cart, they're, they're not necessarily at their optimum uh, freshness. Mm-hmm. For instance, typically six or eight or ten orders of a particular item come out of a kitchen at once. So when I see a cart and I see there are eight shrimp dumplings on it, I know that those shrimp dumplings must be fresh. And, and the contrary, when there's only it's the last shrimp dumpling, it's been probably walking around the room for a little too long. So um, those are those are some tools for dealing with, uh, you know, uh, the being pragmatic and, and getting the best you can in any particular restaurant. But the, sh- the carts are part of the show business aspect of dim sum restaurants. In fact, no I, question. I ate at a restaurant in Toronto once where the carts were automated. They came around without anybody pushing them. Uh, That's exciting. And then what you would do is you'd stand in front of it, and the electric eye would just stop it, and you'd take the dishes that you wanted, and then it would move ahead. Yeah. That sounds like what you see in some sushi places, right? (laughs) And uh, when I was a kid, we had a a restaurant in Brooklyn Heights with a little electric train that brought you your hamburger. So (laughs) Same idea. (laughs) Now, uh, how do Chinese Americans view the dim sum cart restaurant? I, uh, well, Most of them I, still go to them. Uh, not only do they go to them, uh, one of the primary sources of income uh, and business, you know, for a dim sum restaurant, is the fact that it is a family tradition to go out on Sundays with you, you know, as a group en famille to a dim sum restaurant. And that's not just an American Chinese tradition; that's a Cantonese tradition. And then friends find you and they join your table. Well, th- th- that happens here because you're sharing tables, and so you sit communally, and you, and you make new friends. I, I actually think the the animus of a lot of uh, Chinese guests is that they don't really want to share. They they don't they want to go with enough people so they can have their own table. Um, but you know, it, it's an interesting thing. Um, one one noteworthy uh, precept that we have here is that when you go for dim sum, you go with a group, you sit at a table, you order a lot of different things, and the bill's 15 bucks a person. Well, I was in Singapore a few months ago, and I went out for dim sum, and I've gone out certainly many times in Hong Kong. And when you go out to a, a nicer restaurant, uh, dim sum's kind of a luxury food. They understand that you make each of these dumplings by hand, and just the way a, a Japanese chef stands in front of you and makes a rice bowl and crafts a piece of sushi or makes you an omakase, um, uh, it's quite a complicated uh, process making a dumpling, and and so it can be quite expensive, in, especially in Asia, to take your family out for dim sum. Haven't the traditions changed a lot? When, I remember when I first went to dim sum restaurants, they would count the dishes on the table, and that's how they'd figure out the bill. Uh, then I heard that some people would slip some of the dishes under the table so they wouldn't have to pay the full price. And now nobody seems to do that. Well, they, you know, you have a check. What they do is they have a check on the table, and they have a series of categories, and it's, you know, very small, small, medium, small, medium, and, you know, whatever the number is. And then they have a, a, a couple of categories, one for main dishes and one for dishes that have their own unique prices. So they actually now stamp the the items uh, on your check as they come. And, and they're, you don't get away with too much free stuff. But one thing that they do stamp 
and you know that you're a revered guest, is when they put your, when you sit down and they ask you what kind of tea you want, they give you your check, and that's how they keep count. Now, if you're in the most category of most revered guests, um, they stamp uh, your check with the words um, free tea. <laughs> and because there is cover charge for dim sum, and it's the cost of tea. And if in like, well, I drink chrysanthemum petal tea. There's an upcharge for that particular tea. And uh, in, in, if you got, went to a, a really, you know, if we went out to the Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong, they might have quite a few choices of very rarefied, very expensive teas. My guest is Ed Schoenfeld, whose uh, Red Farm restaurants serve a lot of dim sum. We're talking about dim sum on today's Please Explain. Red Farm with two locations in the city, one in Greenwich Village and one on the Upper West Side. Yep. We're on Hudson Street at uh, West 10th and Charles, and we're in Broadway and 77th. And um, we have a, we describe our food as modern uh, Chinese, Cantonese food on the creative side. Uh, our primary interest is in producing delicious food as opposed to just authentic food. And our food's very finely crafted. And we have a head chef, Joe Wang, who is, uh, in the words of Pete Wells, uh, the New York Times restaurant critic, he called uh, Joe Wang the Balanchine of dim sum mm -hmm. in, in uh, North America. And Joe has a, a really special ability. He he can create uh, an incredibly large number of dumplings. He makes what they call figurative dumplings, which is a very rarefied technique of making dumplings that look like animals. So we we have uh, you know our most famous item are our Pac-Man shaped <laughs> shrimp dumplings, and we have spring rolls that look like flowers. But the mo no most noteworthy thing to me, beyond the fact that he has a real delicacy and very fine level of craftsmanship, is that his level of delicious, his flavors are turned up very very high and. Um, and he's just real good at what he does. Uh, I really appreciate him as a fan, uh, even though I have a, a clearly have a self interest. We have a, have to take a little break. We invite your calls. Our number here is two one two four three three nine six nine two. If you have a question or a comment about dim sum on for today's, please explain. Uh, you can also write to us on our show page at wmic.org or on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We will be back with more right after this. And we are back with our Please Explain look at dim sum with Ed Schoenfeld, who uh, has a couple of restaurants that make dim sum, the Red Farm restaurants. Uh, and uh, we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Thopate. Mary Lee from Manhattan, hi, you're on the air. Hi, I'd like to know if there are any suggestions for how to choose a chi, depending on, you know, what the, uh, you know, what you order for dim sum. Is it, you mean tea pairing the way you might pair wines? Yes. Are there suggestions? Well, you know, I, I think it, it depends a lot on, on how you react, your own taste. I tend to like very flowery. Um, tastes to pair with dim sum. Uh, I, I like that juxtaposition. I think a lot of Chinese, um, in, in my experience, uh, bole cha, um, 
they are looking to have a, experience some of the tannin in tea and the astringency. And, and you know, interestingly enough, I, I, I've never seen people talk about it, but often I wonder, because there's such a different uh, tradition with Western and Eastern, you know, uh, a, a, a Western chef wants to brew their tea for four or five minutes. They, they want to take it out promptly. They don't want any hint of tannin, which starts to develop at four or five minutes. Chinese want to brew the first pot of tea, save the leaves, then brew the second pot, and they think the second pot is is more to their taste than the first. So it, That's I right. think it, it really depends a little bit on 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 your you know just like with wine what what do you prefer what what are you what are you eating with dim sum if you're uh, are you eating a, a shrimp uh, dumpling where maybe something flowery well, exactly. might exactly I mean I, I asked this because I once uh, had, was admonished for ordering a jasmine tea when most of the dim sum we were ordering was uh, shrimp and you know the typical seafood and right. I wasn't my my Chinese wasn't good enough to ask why I shouldn't have ordered jasmine to go with what we were ordering on, for dim sum. On the other hand, it was my experience that jasmine tea was automatically brought out to my table when I went to dim sum restaurants. And I'd have to say, because I like pole, uh, right. no, I want the pole. Right. And, you know, I, I think that you get, listen, when you go into a restaurant, if they're paying attention, the staff, the manager, the waiters, you sit down, they size you up right away. And and they certainly size me up as not being Chinese, right? And in a, certainly in a Chinese, you know, situation, I, I you know, uh, I, I I know having run Chinese restaurants for over forty years and often been the only Caucasian working with a group of of Chinese people that there's there's a lot of sizing up going on, and it you know it's not bad, it's useful. I mean, you know, when a Korean guest sits down in my restaurant, I bring him hot sauce. I'd be stupid not to. You know, the same with an Indian guest. You just have a sense of what they want. So with with, I, I think it's a good thing to ask. And, and listen, most restaurants they have a, a, the house tea. It's a relatively inexpensive tea. That's what they what they want to serve you. And don't forget, for years the expectation in, in American restaurants has been the tea is free. And from the restaurateur's point of view, well, now we're in a, in a world where where we talk about what the best this and that is. And I can go into the tea shop on Mott Street, and I, I go in and I bring home a little jasmine tea. It's $120 a pound. Are we supposed to serve that and give that away? So, you know. Well, but a lot of people think of Chinese food as being inexpensive. The tea should be free. We don't assume that the coffee is going to be free, even at a diner. So exactly, uh, we the Chinese have to deal with all of that. A Chinese chef once said to me, uh, "You know, abalone costs a lot of money, uh, whether it's uh, being served in a very fancy restaurant or in a, an inexpensive Chinese restaurant. It's an expensive ingredient, and uh, we are forced to charge a lot less for it than anybody else would." Well, th there's no no question that in this country, the for many decades and you know Chinese food has been considered an inexpensive filling tasty way to go and uh, we have had periods kind of golden periods of, of better quality Chinese food here in the states in the 70s um, we had an influx of chefs from mainland China that really brought in a higher level of cooking 
Right now, we have growth in the business in, term, in Asia, and, and we're going to start to see some of that come here now. Where what, some Chinese are, restaurants from Asia are coming to New York and uh, opening places? Yeah, well, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, there's been a great deal of growth in China in the hospitality business in particular, new hotels. Uh, restaurants have sprung up. Restaurant companies have sprung up. And just the way you hear about wealthy people coming to the United States and buying real estate and parking their money and investing here, you now have um, uh, restaurant entrepreneurs and restaurant companies who think uh, this might be a good market for them. There's increased Chinese tourism to this country that provides them with a, a customer base. And, you know, they hear that, uh, you know, in the United States um, – you know, people eat a lot of Chinese food. Now, it's something that as a restaurant owner in New York City that um, goes after the consumer dollar in the Chinese food business is something that I'm very aware of. Uh, who, who's going to be my competition in 36 or 72 months? And, and why? And what am I going to do to compete successfully with those people? Where would they open their restaurants? In Midtown? Or would they well, go we, to Flushing or Brooklyn or or traditional Chinatown, downtown Manhattan? I, I, think, I think we have to wait and see. We have a few, um, a few people already who have um, announced that they're coming into the marketplace. There's a very famous restaurant in Beijing named Dai Dung. It's a, Dung is the name of the chef. It's a Peking duck specialist restaurant and they've leased space in Bryant Park. I understand they're going to open quite a grand restaurant mm -hmm. there. I don't know how they'll make it into the American marketplace, but it'll be interesting to see. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is uh, Tim Ho Wan, which is a very famous chain of dim sum restaurants in Hong Kong. The chef was quite a famous dim sum chef at a three-star Michelin restaurant and then opened up a little neighborhood joint and it became the rage and uh, the least expensive Michelin restaurant, starred restaurant uh, in the book. And uh, now they've taken a great deal of money from an investor. Then they've built a whole different kind of business, and they're going to be coming to New York. Let's take some calls. Abe from Larchmont. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. I'm wondering how you choose a good dim sum restaurant from just walking in. Uh, the number of Chinese people in the restaurant was the way I used to do it. Uh, you, you know, I, I think clearly by if, if you're in in, uh, in in North America and you're walking into a restaurant, how crowded the restaurant is is a good indication of uh, it's being a popular place. Um, it may be popular because it's good, but not very expensive. Uh, it may be popular because it's terrific. Uh, Hard to tell unless you sit down and taste the food. I, you know, the proof is in the pudding to me. And and like anything else, you know, go online, do research. Uh, I I think you can, you know, kind of figure things out. And you know, the fact of the matter is, to my mind, there aren't any really great dim sum restaurants in North America. There are a bunch of good ones, but it right now, um, dim sum chefs make more money by staying in Asia than they do by coming to the States. So a lot of the best ones stay over there now. Abe, would you uh, just, how would you judge a sushi restaurant or an Indian restaurant or a restaurant from any other culture, a good Mexican restaurant? You probably would go online and see what people are saying, right? Abe is not there. Okay. A number of people uh, have written in. Well, one person wonders, what dish should you try first? Hagao, Shumai, if you want to judge a restaurant? Well, um, 
yes and yes. Th- th- <laughs> those are the the two uh, you know core dumplings. And a, a for the the listener that don't know doesn't know that a, a hargau is a shrimp filled dumpling um, with a pleated top and has a little bit of a snail shape to it and a. Uh, shumai is an open dumpling with a, a yellow wheat wrapper and has pork and very often pork and shrimp inside. We look for a few things. We look for the shape. We look for the texture is, is almost the first thing we look for in, in those foods. Chinese chefs, when they're making something, they think of the texture as the first element of what they're trying to create. A listener wonders about vegetarian dim sum. Well, Can again, you go into a restaurant and say, I'm a vegetarian, uh, I only want vegetarian dim sum? Well, you can at, because, at, Re- you can at Red Farm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we but, know that we have customers like that, and we make There's sure a strong vegetarian three... tradition in Chinese cuisine. Th- there is a whole Buddhist tradition. Um, dim sum doesn't have that much vegetarian uh, food. Uh, a lot of it is shrimp and pork-based. Um, most places make a vegetable dumpling. Sometimes a vegetable dumpling may be a dumpling that's mostly vegetables, mm-hmm. right? With a um, little bit of pork or something else. Yeah, I, I, I think that when I go with a friend for dim sum, there, there's uh, rice noodle dough, chung fung, what they call, wrapped in a crepe that has a fried bread inside. That's a, a, a vegetarian item. That's a good thing to get. There's daikon uh, that's mashed up and made into a turnip cake. Sometimes that's vegetarian, sometimes it's not. Miriam, uh, a listener, wrote on our show page that she is a vegetarian, but she also uh, cooks and bakes a lot. She's always hesitated to try making dim sum. Are there certain dishes that might be good for her to try first? Well, I, I look, when you when you make dim sum, there are four parts to making dim sum. One is the skin manufacturing that. The next part is making the filling. The third part is putting one inside the other. The fourth part is cooking it. I don't think there's a big issue. And you can buy some skins. Uh, They're not quite the same as the ones you make yourself, but you certainly could do it. And I don't think it's very hard to make a a filling made from vegetables. I mean, you have to make sure that it's not very wet. Uh, And then you steam it? What what would happen with the filling is that you would cut the vegetables to a particular shape. You'd get an idea. For instance, we like to have little all cubed vegetables, and then we'd sauté that, and we'd chill it, and then we'd take the chilled filling and put it inside a wrapper, Mm -hmm. and then we'd steam it probably. Ed Schoenfeld is a restaurateur, Chinese food historian, and Chinese food lover, owner and operator of both the the two Red Farms and the Decoy restaurant. And, uh, Ed, it has been a great pleasure talking about dim sum with you today on Today's Please Explain. Sorry we couldn't get to some of the other questions. Somebody wanted to know whether you should bring a Cantonese speaker with you to a dim sum restaurant. Uh, Not in New York.